just in time for summer, the folks at Epic Brewing have released a new canned cocktail, the Utah Margarita. A delicious blend of real lime and agave, the Utah Margarita is ready to drink by the river or in the park. And here's the kicker, no need to buy it at a liquor store. Pick up a six-pack of Epic Brewing's Utah Margarita at any local Harmon's or Trader Joe's, or visit Epic Brewing on State Street in downtown Salt Lake City. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. Gentrification is the word of the decade. And the Salt Lake City Planning Commission recently recommended the city council adopt an anti-displacement and gentrification mitigation plan. It is called Thriving in Place. So I had a casual chat with an expert about what gentrification actually looks like in this city. It's Wednesday, August 9th. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Alessandro Rigolon, you are a professor of city planning at the University of Utah. And one of your areas of expertise is gentrification. (laughs) Today, I thought we'd have a casual chat about housing, neighbor to neighbor. I do feel like we should both acknowledge that we both live on the east bench of this city. Because when we talk about housing, there's like a real divide. Uh, Definitely. Yeah, I live in Sugar House. So the lived experiences of our neighborhood are quite different from, you know, those, say, in Central City or on the West Side. Let's get into it a little bit on gentrification. It is a word that is very buzzy. Is it always bad? Like, what do people misunderstand about gentrification? I think there is a confusion between gentrification and displacement. So gentrification is about who comes in to a neighborhood, right? Who arrives? And we generally define it as an influx of uh, generally college-educated, higher-income, mostly white uh, folks to areas that were previously disinvested in low-income and majority people of color. Sometimes investments from developers come first. Sometimes folks are moving in first. That can be harmful for long-time residents, but it doesn't have to. So if the housing is stable, their harms of gentrification are relatively, they can be smaller in that they're only about potential racial tensions or potential closures of businesses that tend to serve low-income people of color. Let's say a little carniceria closes and Starbucks open afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. Now, when things become more harmful is displacement due to, you know, oftentimes lack of rent stabilization, low homeownership rates, as well as eviction policies that are relaxed and very pro-landlords. Um, when those... Uh, college-educated, often young folks start moving in, they start to outcompete low-income folks for the limited housing that is available. And, mm-hmm. and therefore, a landlord is seeing more you know, white folks with dogs around the neighborhood and say, whoa, wow, I can, you know what, I'm going to kick everybody out from my apartment uh, complex and then just you know, paint it white, put gentrification numbers on it and charge $1,000 more. Those are the, the more harmful effects. You're seeing this around the country, not just Salt Lake. And it's the symptom of uh, cities not building enough housing in general, overall, but specifically not building enough housing that it, that is 
restricted in terms of how much you know rent increases can be. Um, so gentrification is about who comes in and displacement is about who has to leave. I guess like when I think about gentrification, I also think about the cultural impacts of gentrification or like the visual impacts, like the number of signs on houses start to look different or more modern or, you know, you see certain types of restaurants come in, like what's available in stores starts to look different. It also feels like it has this cultural influence where like even if there isn't displacement, right, like culture can be displaced by gentrification. Is that right? Certainly. And in those circumstances, you also see newcomers calling the police more often on neighbors who are longtime residents because maybe they're playing music too loud for their taste. Or there is research into those neighborhood dynamics and micro-conflicts that occur when gentrification starts. And there's also, on the other hand, some people who move to gentrifying communities like the diversity of those communities, right? Not all gentrifiers are the same. Some kind of want to live in a predominantly Latinx neighborhood. And in some places, especially with big cities, you have developers doing what is called ethnic packaging. So they're basically like, you know, trying to promote a place because, of, oh, there's great Mexican food. There's great Thai food. Uh, oh. come, come and see this community. It has so much diversity, so much to offer. And so it's kind of also used as a as a weapon <laughs> to, you know, right. to promote the, the influx of new wealthier folks. And then that diversity eventually just fades away. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a little bit like fetishization, like the neighborhood becomes what, like a zoo? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, come visit the neighborhood and like watch people living their lives. I don't know. So I hear you saying that gentrification and displacement are two different things, though they can be par and partner. Are there any examples in Salt Lake of gentrification happening without displacement? I don't think so. We don't have we don't have a large enough stock of subsidized housing or low income home ownership for gentrification to occur without substantial displacement. I would say there are some neighborhoods with significant shares of subsidized housing. So in some specific blocks, maybe gentrification is happening. Maybe the ground floors of the buildings look different. Or maybe the isolated kind of single family homes or small apartments get flipped. But the bulk of the neighborhood remains the same because you have that significant number of people who can stay there because there's public subsidy into the housing. Another example could be some blocks on the west side around Fair Park or Guadalupe, where you have more home ownership from longtime low-income people of color. I think for the neighborhood not to feel change, there needs to be a critical mass of community members that can stay in place. And then, of course, you know, cities change all the time, right? We can put all sorts of policies in place, but change will happen. We're in a market-based economy, and people move, new households are formed, people pass. And so there's a, you know, there's a natural change that occurs, but what gentrification is is that change is much more accelerated and visible than otherwise. It feels like the city wants to understand gentrification and do something about it. Though I feel like as a resident, I still don't fully understand what the plan of action is, but they did a thriving in place study. You and your students actually conducted the study and was designed to come up with goals for mitigating the impacts of gentrification. What were some of the big takeaways of that study? Like, what would you advise? 
There were two parts. There was a community survey and interviews that we did with our students at the University of Utah. And then uh, consultants from Berkeley did uh, uh, in-depth analysis of kind of displacement risks. And by the way, the data from, from that part is from 2019. So the pandemic happened and made things significantly worse. But most striking takeaways are that there are no more affordable neighborhoods in the city or in the region where lower-income families who are displaced can move to. Basically, that means that if you're displaced, you're unlikely to find another home for the same price or lower. You're likely to find options that are a little more expensive to much more expensive. We also found like a significant shortage in the number of units at all price ranges, but especially the lowest income range. The market is not going to produce anything new now that rents were less than $1,000. And then we found that people are spending a lot of money on rent. Half of our renters are rent burdened, uh, which means that they spend more than 30% of their income on rent. So easy to do. Yes, with the current prices, right? And then something else that we found that I think explains some of these other things is that even middle-income folks, you know, with professional jobs and such, have a hard time buying a place to live. If a family making, you know, 100 plus K a year has a hard time buying a home, that means that they're going to stay in the rental market, which means that there's going to be more competition in the rental market, which means that, you know, landlords can just keep jacking up prices. Yeah. I mean, I make more than the area median income in Salt Lake, and I can't afford to buy a house. Period. Period. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, that just kind of stares you in the face, especially when these conversations surround things like AMI. And then you look at those numbers and you're like, well, I make that and I can't do the thing. So the the whole formula has changed. Those numbers are also countywide. And we in Salt Lake City, as a city, have a lower income than the county as a whole. Uh, That includes a lot of places that are a lot more affluent, uh, especially in the east, um, southeast and southwest of the valley. The Living Traditions Festival is back in downtown Salt Lake City, May 17th through 19th. And this is when I come alive. It is so easy to sell me on three days of Washington Square and Library Square converting to a global food court. And this festival has truly been one of my favorites for years now. Living Traditions convenes the diversity of artistic traditions, food heritage, music, and art from the many cultures that have made Utah their home. You can expect everything from live music and dance to hands-on workshops, a little shopping, Sundance film screenings, and Bohemian Brewery. There is something for the whole family, and it's free entry. Come celebrate all of the rich cultures that make up our community. Find more information on the festival and view the full program guide at livingtraditionsfestival.com or on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. We talk a lot on this show about our city's crown jewels. What are the institutions that open doors in our community and regulate its pulse? I choose Salt Lake Community College, and it is a home for incredibly focused Salt Lakers. 
Nearly 80% of their students work while going to school, many full-time jobs. If I could do college all over again, I would not be 33 and sitting on these damn student loans. And slick students aren't. 80% graduate with little to no student loan debt or save thousands knocking out credits before transferring to a four-year institution. Every day, Salt Lake Community College is transforming lives and communities through education. If you want to learn something new, refine a trade, or pursue a higher degree for the first time, explore your options at slcc.edu. Study alongside hard workers, save precious money, and be one in a class of 19, not 100. One of the things that you hear people say a lot in this city is like, everything they're building is luxury. Why aren't they building affordable housing? And then the other side of that argument that I've heard is, well, if the market is bloated with people who want to buy, who can afford luxury, feed them luxury housing, like give them something to buy, and it will take the pressure off of people who are seeking more affordable housing. Do you fall on either side of that? I think there's some truth in both kind of uh, arguments. As I said earlier, the market alone will not produce new housing, especially new housing that is affordable below 100% AMI. Current construction costs are high. Uh, interest rates are high for you know developers borrowing money. And I mean, they're in that business for profit. There's not other way to, to phrase it. So. The only way to provide housing at lower income range is either by incentivizing developers to give some housing back to us in exchange for something, or the public sector, either cities, counties, states, or federal governments, putting money into it. And so with that in mind, market housing is uh, overall a good thing with some conditions. One, new market housing should not displace existing naturally occurring affordable housing. You know, for example, apartment complex replacing 12 units, small apartment, old units that, yes, might have some problems, but they're renting for affordable prices. So in that regard, you know, we don't want that to happen. In the long term, that market rate housing can become more affordable. And then there's another mechanism that, that can apply. Basically, the theory is that if you're a renter and you're making good money and you want to keep being renter and you can afford it, and there's a new apartment with like a pool, maybe a gym, maybe there's like a place for dogs, you say, you know, I'm going to, you know, I can afford it. I'm going to splurge a bit and live a little larger and go rent in that place. And that kind mm -hmm. of frees up the apartment that you were renting previously. And that becomes available in the market. Now, we don't know the price range of the old apartment. But over time, if a lot more people free up older units, the expectation is that those older units that don't have the same amenities will, if not lower their rent, they will keep it relatively stable over time. It's funny because like I went through this phase where I really wanted to buy a house in 2020. And now I'm currently in a phase where I think I never want to buy a house, Alessandro. <laughs> I actually think I maybe want to rent for the rest of my life because so many of my friends bought houses during the pandemic and their houses are, I don't want to say killing them, but like so much work, so much more money than they anticipated up front. Like 
they've become, I think, for some people, like a bit of a ball and chain. And I'm more and more enjoying, in some ways, like the privilege of renting. Like I like that when something breaks, I just call someone and they fix it. Now, not everyone has a relationship with their landlord to where if something breaks, they call and they fix it. Like there's so much in that dynamic that can go wrong and there are basically no protections for renters. So like I can see why this is a state where homeownership would be more attractive. It feels like the the real case for homeownership at this point is not even necessarily like the joy and pride of owning property or like being able to paint a wall the color I want to. It's more the security of it. I mean, and honestly, that's why we bought a house. I don't particularly enjoy to be crafty and do things in my house, you know, and fixing things. <laughs> uh, I'd rather not have to do it. Uh, but the stability of, of owning and, you know, your mortgage maybe will increase slightly because of property taxes. But, mm-hmm. you know, overall for 30 years, you know how much you're going to pay for housing, which right. is, a, you know, a safety net um, that renters don't have unless they live in subsidized housing. What I would say to you also is that we don't produce enough uh, new uh, ownership opportunities that are not houses. So we don't produce enough townhouses and we don't produce enough condos for sale because of uh, a certain state construction defect law that makes it more difficult for developers to, when they build, say, you know, 10 townhouse, townhomes, to sell them rather than rent them. And so for folks like you who don't want to have to deal with much kind of house stuff, but it's kind of that happy medium that we don't really have much of in Utah and and that I think could help kind of alleviate some of those long-term concerns about ownership and stability if you, you know, if condos are cheaper, right? Condos are everything. Yes. Condos are everything. Condos make so much sense also just for all kinds of people, like people that are older, people that are younger, people that might be living with a disability, people that might want to live close to neighbors in case something happens. There's so many reasons to live close and live in a condo. I currently live in one now. And I'm fascinated to hear you say that the reason that there aren't more condos being built in this city is because of a policy decision. And a, a policy decision that's been made by the Utah legislature, is that right? Yeah, it's, um, I don't remember how many years ago, but there is a, these are construction defect laws that kind of, basically, if, if there's a defect in a group of townhouses or condo building, it's easier for the owners of the condo or the townhome to sue as opposed to like a new single family home. That's one reason. The other reason is financing. It's easier for a new construction once it's almost ready or it's been un- under construction to be transferred to a landlord who will kind of rent the entire thing for 15, 30 years or so, than to have to find, say, 12 different buyers from the get-go who will buy those 12 units. And so it's it makes it a bit more complicated to do that, and that deters some developers. And it's particularly interesting because we are supposedly a pro-family state, and yeah. families want, I think, home ownership for the reasons that we just talked about. And I think it would be in the best interest of the legislature to remove those barriers and make it easier to build for sale condos and for sale townhomes. Yeah, I mean, right now we're watching the Salt Lake City School Board figure out which elementary schools to close because there aren't enough elementary school aged kids in the city to fill them. And 
I mean, if you look around, there isn't a lot of housing stock for families of the size that a lot of Salt Lake families, you know, are. My dream, if I was like my perfect Salt Lake, the kind of housing that we see more of, it would be three bedroom, two bath condos, three, two condos. I'm manifesting it. <laughs> Definitely. And and just so you know, um, I, I just ran some numbers a few months ago and between 2010 and 2021, most of the population growth in Salt Lake has been from non-family households, basically meaning roommates, um, single folks, the families that were here, some of them moved away, you know, looking for larger housing units, more affordable housing units than what you can find here in the city. So many of the things we've talked about today have brought us back to policy. A lot of these things have been mandated by the legislature. But in terms of what the city can do, what kind of bold moves might you like to see from Salt Lake City Corporation? It's a difficult question. There's a lot of things that I would like to see them do. What are your top three? <laughs> All right. Well, I think I would like to see, at the very least, a serious implementation of, of Thriving in Place. Stop the bleeding of displacement, so to speak. Like, there is an emergency that is happening right now. We need to put money into it right now. That's a thing like move number one. Um, move number two would be some sort of public or social housing fund, either could be a, an affordable housing bond, similar to you know what we've done for parks, but hmm. significantly increase the public dollars that we, that we can afford to spend on permanent housing. It could be to create a home ownership opportunities. It could be uh, rental housing that is in perpetuity affordable. That would be number two. And I think number three has to be on the zoning side, kind of liberalizing a bit more what we can build, especially in, in high income neighborhoods. Um, you know, make it easier to build townhomes in, on the East Bench and Yellcrest, uh, Federal Heights, or make it easier. The avenues. The avenues. Uh, make it easier to build apartments uh, in, you know, in those communities too. I think part of the gentrification problem is that folks who could afford to live in those communities don't find any housing options. Uh, and so they kind of spill over to communities that are lower you know, income and more diverse. I mean, I have to tell you, I remember moderating a debate for the Senate seat on the east side. And probably 60% of the public submitted questions that we got were, how will you fight to preserve the character of our neighborhood from things like dead city? So, I mean, you're inside the belly of the beast when we talk about housing and gentrification. If you had to serve up some talking points to a politician to try and convince their constituents that we need to embrace things like gentle density on the east side of this city. What is the pitch? Like, how how do you get people on board that are so reticent? Or are they a lost cause? I think change is hard, especially for older folks who have been living in a neighborhood for a long time. I understand. I don't resent those positions. I would offer a few points. One is, uh, would you like your kids to live in your neighborhood or in your city when they grow up? What about our schools? They're hollowing out. We're losing enrollment. The teachers at your school, the nurses at the hospital, 
is there a place for them in our city or they need to commute for Magna or from Tuila? So trying to build arguments that it's sad to say, but hit people's what is convenient to them or, or what is beneficial to them rather than kind of using big picture things like, oh, it's an equity issue or to address climate change. Make it personal. Yeah, make it personal. Make it build an argument that this is something that will benefit you or the people you love. That might have a stronger chance to hit home, at least with some folks. Alessandro Rigolon, city planning professor and housing expert. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Alessandro may get some of his wishes for the city's approach to housing. The Salt Lake City Council recently approved a new housing plan. This one is separate from the thriving-in-place gentrification strategy. The housing SLC plan has three goals. One, increase our affordable housing supply. Two, keep people in their homes and help displaced people find new ones. And three, increase opportunities for homeownership. That, of course, is our analysis from pages of text. We want to better understand exactly how the city would execute on those big ideas, and I imagine you do too, which means we are working to share more with you later. Stay tuned. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye. Bye.